0: This is the Be On Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsasser. This year we're exploring the book of Acts and then the rest of the New Testament in what we're calling a chrono flow, that we're following the chronology of the book of Acts, and then just jumping off at the places, people, and theological topics that get addressed there. And we've been spending some time away from the book of Acts in the books of 1 Corinthians and today 2 Corinthians. So, Ben, the good news is 2 Corinthians is a little bit shorter than 1 Corinthians, so I hope that's, <laughs> that's probably a good thing. But together, they make up a lot of chapters, 29 chapters in all, in which Paul has a lot to say to the Corinthian people, and we can get a number of insights about Corinth and about Paul and about the faith from these two books. So it's an important thing to understand. Second Corinthians was written a year or so after First Corinthians. I don't know if there's a simple way to sum it up. My version is this, that First Corinthians is largely about living in a corrupt culture, and Second Corinthians might be largely about refuting corrupt teachers, people who have been false teachers and were kind of infiltrating and and doing some things. I know there's overlap, and I know there's a lot more covered in there but we're going to explore maybe some of these topics here in the next few weeks as we begin with 2 Corinthians today. So, you ready to jump into this? Yep. All right, let's do it. We're just going to jump right in with 2 Corinthians chapter 1 with kind of this this topic that Paul comes into and he it, it's not it's not like the, an opening letter that you'd get from most people that goes right into persecution. I don't know if your grandma ever wrote you a letter <laughs> or, or not, but it is a different kind of a thing. And so right away, second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3, he says, "Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the god of all comfort." Good words, compassion, comfort, who comforts us in all our trouble. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. You know, Ben, I, I'm looking at these words, and, and the word comfort and the word suffering in various forms appears numerous times in this little paragraph how do these words go together in Paul's mind and our theological understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus it is not the american dream no when we talk about comfort we think about family and homes and cars and ac and a uh, tons of other things we don't typically combine the word comfort with suffering so what is Paul driving at in this paragraph.
1: That suffering is a reality of life, and obviously what Paul is alluding to here is the suffering that is born of the persecution that he's facing, that the people in Corinth are facing for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ, but the knowledge that we don't suffer alone, that we serve a Savior who has suffered on our behalf, uh, a Savior who has been resurrected from the grave, which is part of what Paul will draw on um, in 2 Corinthians 4, which I think we'll talk about next week, but how the resurrection, in in essence, redeems our suffering. Uh, it doesn't minimize the suffering, but we also recognize that if the resurrection is true, our view of life, uh, our, our understanding of life changes. Our understanding of suffering itself uh, changes um, but as paul is is speaking here the the big thing that he 's highlighting for us is that we don 't suffer alone, and that as brothers and sisters in Christ, the mutual suffering that we endure sets us free to be a comfort and an encouragement to one another, because as we suffer, we do experience the comfort of Jesus Christ, and as we experience the comfort of Christ as we abide in the love of Christ. We're set free to empathize with those who are also suffering, and we're set free to encourage those who are suffering uh, with us. And again, what Paul is speaking to here specifically is the suffering of persecution. But you think about how a, a common suffering frees us to be a comfort to another. So for me, you know, having experienced the death of my father as a teenager. One of the things that I've found over the 20 years of ministry is that I have immediate clout with with teenagers who are wrestling or or with children who are wrestling with the loss of a parent Um, because they know it's not, if I say I understand, while I might not understand the specifics of everybody's circumstance, I do understand the nature of that loss. And so I have immediate clout with them. My presence seems to be a comfort to them because they can see me and and see me through the lens of he knows what I'm going through. And so as we endure those sufferings and we find common suffering with others, we're set free uh, through the comfort we ourselves have experienced through our relationship with Christ, uh, through the love that we've experienced through our relationship with Christ, uh, in our sufferings to then go and in some ways be a tangible expression of God's love to those who are suffering. Yeah,
0: this this concept you're talking about, the the truth of the resurrection, he lifts up in verse 9 of this first chapter in 2 Corinthians, and he, he was talking about his travels when he thought he was going to die. He said, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So, so he, I think he's saying he not only believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but he believed in the resurrection of the dead, that is, his own personal self and those who are followers of Jesus, that this life is not the end, but it is a transition to the eternal life that is given to us by the grace of God mm-hmm. and, and that reliance upon the resurrection. Because early in, in First Corinthians, we talked a lot about, we preach Christ crucified, the crucified Lord, but he, he's saying he's not just a dead Jesus, he's a resurrected Jesus, yeah. and he promises us resurrection, and that is going to bring us great comfort, so in that we can find comfort in the midst of any kind of suffering or persecution or, or whatever we may face. It's it's I still think it's hard for us at least living in america and in in this time of the world to really wrap our minds around the suffering that the Corinthian Christians were going through, but nonetheless we might feel that people don't understand us or they reject us or reject our teaching or our our way of life and there is a sense in which people want to just hide from that i believe and and this encourages me to say stand strong stand firm and whether or not you're received by culture or the or your friends or your neighbors or even your family members know that god's going to be there and comfort you and one another we can comfort one another
1: yeah absolutely and and back to the point you made about the resurrection uh, itself. And what Paul says here in verse nine, which he carries that, that thought further in chapter four. Um, but going back to first Corinthians where Paul does, I mean, he, he, he fixates and and hyper focuses on, we preach Christ crucified. And it puts the exclamation point though on that in chapter 15, when he talks about the necessity of the resurrection to where he, he says in first Corinthians uh, 15, you know, if, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, and so he he sees the necessity of the resurrection. That it's the resurrection that is the the revelation that that Christ has uh, conquered death, that Jesus has paid in total uh, the the penalty of our sin, and that His resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection to come. To where at the end of First Corinthians fifteen you know paul says uh, as we as we face down death he says you know where oh, death is your victory where oh, death is your sting and while there are those who are obviously left to mourn uh, in our absence in the wake of somebody's death to know that death is not the end to know that as christ lives so shall we and that conditions our heart it conditions our life to where we're set free we're set free to follow after Christ we're set free to faithfully live into the calling that God has put upon our life not counting the consequences to our own life because we know that that life is eternal and that there is this certain promise of uh, of eternity with Christ that then leads us in this life to to not count the cost as Paul as Paul would
0: say Absolutely important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now I'd like to just to jump to chapter 2. There's there's just too much content as we talked about to get it all. But I, I want to tie these these thoughts that we're talking about together with church discipline and and forgiveness because the word comfort comes up again in a little different context in chapter 2. And let me begin in verse 5 and Paul, I think, is maybe reflecting on some people who had been receiving some church discipline for their their lives and lifestyle choices and so forth, and he's he says this in, in verse five: If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. It, you know, this is a, a a kind of a tender writing really and say, you know, people mess up, they they make mistakes, they do dumb stuff. And discipline them. And I want to put this sort of in juxtaposition with what he wrote in 1 Corinthians when he was talking about some of the things. And I'll just highlight one of them. There were a number of them when he really made some challenges. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning of verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case you'd have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, or an idolater, or slanderer, or drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So he had written that and and, I, and then he, now he's writing another letter in Second Corinthians and there were probably a couple of other letters, scholars believe, that, that were written that we don't have access to. So it's hard to get the full flow of the conversation back and forth. And we don't have any of their letters back to Paul. But he kind of says on one hand, don't even associate with people, don't even eat with people who are are in the faith but are saying, forget it, I'm going to live any way I want. And here in Second Corinthians chapter 2, he's coming on to say, enough's enough. Forgive the person and love the person, and comfort is the word again. the person what do you, what do you see in this
1: uh two things one, Paul's words in first Corinthians five are meant to you know we practice church discipline as a means to bring someone to repentance mm-hmm. that that's the goal because we want somebody's life, we want our own lives aligned with Christ. And so we would practice church discipline we would call somebody to repentance if they refused to repent you know Paul would say expel the wicked brother from among you and even in that there is a hope and a desire that 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 brother or that sister would repent and return uh to the fold and so what we see I think in 2 Corinthians is I think we see implied repentance that this person who has been disciplined has been who has repented And Paul is calling for them to exercise forgiveness, to be a revelation of God's forgiveness to them and how they greet that brother and how they welcome that brother back into the fold. And what Paul is, it really is parroting here. It has a parallel message to what Jesus said in Matthew 18 because Jesus pretty much called for the exact same thing. Sometimes people read Paul and their lack of biblical theology and not knowing how all the puzzle pieces fit together. Sometimes people will, uh, you know, they see Paul's words, for instance, in First Corinthians five, and they they think to themselves, "Well, this is in opposition to what Jesus would have us do," which is just an absolute falsehood. Because so often people try to pit Paul against Jesus. Sometimes, as an excuse to to I mean, honestly engage in sin. But that being said, Jesus himself calls for this kind of discipline, the, the discipline that Paul fleshes out here in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and we also see it in Titus, and the purpose behind it is repentance. The, per- the purpose behind it is growth in relationship with Jesus Christ, and also the purpose behind it is to maintain unity within the body of Christ. Um, Because we want to be of one heart and one mind, serving under, abiding under our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so as a means to even maintain unity within the body, church discipline needs to be applied in certain circumstances. So let's
0: get real with this. The church discipline is on the front end leading people to repentance. Church discipline. Perhaps... That is the area where, at least in my experience in my tribe, that we don't we don't do a lot of church discipline we We kind of let people make their own decisions and and do what they want, and as long as they're not causing a ruckus in the church but in in terms of their own lives and their own views and their own practices and the things that that get a, addressed in scripture as as things that might be worthy of church discipline I, I don't see a lot of it in in my tribe so if that is what's to lead to repentance are we doing people a disservice by not bringing the the discipline into into life which I'm not going to say prevents repentance because the Holy that's the Holy Spirit's work, but you know you know what I'm driving at here. I mean, like it seems like the yeah. front end of it. It's not on the forgiveness and the kindness and the comfort and compassion end of it that at least in our tribe we fall down, but it might be on the front end of it on the discipline side.
1: Yeah, we we don't within the Western Church because in other places you'll see church discipline applied. Uh, much more fully than we see within the Western church. Within the Western church, church discipline tends to happen over two things, infidelity and if somebody has stolen money from the church. Those are the two things that will encourage church discipline. Uh, Beyond that, very little church discipline is ever exercised. Sadly, it's to our detriment, it's to the detriment of our brothers and sisters in Christ, because we have a tendency to look the other way, to sweep things under the rug or to minimize certain behaviors. And so if somebody is given, for instance, to slander and gossip, and they are, you know, um, you know, they've reached all-star status with their slander and gossip. And if somebody went to them and said, hey, you know, this persisting- Is there a home run derby for gossip? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. There might be. There might you have got to make baseball references. That's fair. Because that's fair. I know you, you in, Cincinnati Reds fans are all into baseball right now because you're crushing it. It's rare right. in
0: July that Doug and I can be celebrating uh, first
1: placeness. I know the, the Cubs, as a Cubs fan, we're just always in the doldrums. But <laughs> anyway, that being said, uh, but we still have 2016. Praise God. Uh, maybe, but maybe if you live 108 more years. That's all right. I got to see one in my lifetime. I'll take it. So yeah, somebody might have got all star potential with their slander and gossip, and maybe somebody's gone to them and held them accountable and said, "Hey, you need to dial that back. Slander's inappropriate, gossip's inappropriate." Um, and the gossip and slander, let's say it persists, uh, typically people will just look the other way with it because we seemingly have this, you know, hierarchy of sin. Within the body of Christ, and so there's certain things that we just don't touch, and some of it's because you know gossip and slander has become so culturally acceptable that it's become almost acceptable and and ex- expected and even joked about within the church. You know, I mean, there there are times where you hear hear people joking about about gossip, for instance, not realizing or not really. I guess accepting to heart that this is an offense to God and it's creating or nurturing disunity within the body. Um, it's not leading to the love of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, the, within the Western church, we do see church discipline exercised periodically, but it's not often. The, the church that I've seen do the best job of this, honestly, is Tony Evans Church, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, where they. They will exercise church discipline. They will excommunicate somebody from the fold if there is a refusal to repentance. But one of the things that they do that is beautiful is that they take that Luke fifteen, uh, prodigal son, uh, uh, parable to heart. And and one of the things that they do is upon repentance, they throw a party for the repentance center. You know, the person who has come back to the fold and they practice what you see here in in Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians where they welcome the brother or sister back they they greet the brother or sister with forgiveness they wrap their arms around the brother or sister and gossip and slander do not persist uh in the wake of repentance yeah i would say what you're describing with Tony Evans church is rare in
0: at least my experience in the in the western context or or what I really know, Indiana, United Methodism, it's extremely rare. In fact, in among pastors, United Methodist pastors that I know, we're, we're often kind of proud of the fact that we have a guaranteed appointment, which is like a union card, and by that we have freedom to preach the gospel. But what I hear from many of my colleagues, and maybe myself as well, is that nobody has ever shut me down or even held me accountable for my good or bad theology that comes from my mouth on a Sunday or a Tuesday night or, or whenever. And I see that as problematic. I don't see that as a benefit uh, to, the, to the church at large, that there's not discipline that comes our way. I see it as a negative, and I'm going to push back on something you you said earlier about stealing money or infidelity. I'm not even sure that we address infidelity. I think if it happens among the clergy, churches do, but if it happens among people in the pews or people in the church, that if there's infidelity or people choosing to cohabitate or whatever else, I'm not even sure that's happening very much in the modern world. So, so it's
1: maybe, maybe I'm
0: missing something, but, but,
1: um, yeah, the, the the churches that that I've been in, in the past, and the only time that I've had to exercise church discipline on someone was in two different cases. And both of those cases were for unrepentant infidelity. Mm -hmm. And so I've had people come to me who have confessed their unfa, their were repentant about it, and one of the things that we did was we you know we didn't excommunicate that brother or sister. we removed them from every committee that they were on, told them to take a step back from that, and we entered into a process of a year or two of restoration right of of deep counseling. The two times that I've had to exercise church discipline have been because of infidelity where just completely unrepentant self justified infidelity where they weren't going to find a home uh, in in the church where I served. Now the reality is, as you've said, most of the time, unless it's clergy, unless it's clergy, and unless it's financial, because finances will get you yeah, in trouble. That's the big. Right? That's right. the big one. But from an infidelity standpoint, yes, there have been, and I, and I know because I've I've seen, I've seen fellow clergy wrestle with this when they've sought to exercise church discipline and got pushed back. Uh, on that um in the wake of some sort of infidelity within the body of Christ because again people want to oftentimes look the other way. They want to abide with some cultural mentality where the, the and I mean sadly in essence, you know, when when I hear somebody say, Well it's, you know, there's mutual issues within the marriage, blah, 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 it's seeking to self justify it, seeking to make sense of it. And there has been to your point, there has sadly been a lack of church discipline. And again, what's what's even maybe sadder to me is the fact that when it comes to accountability or even the thought of church discipline, it only revolves really around those two issues when there are so many other things. Because we're supposed to be a sanctifying community. As you said in your message uh, on Sunday, you know, our, our deepest desire should be to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we want? for ourselves and for one another, well, that, that engenders, that, that invites accountability. And so, so, you know, maybe because it's the level of my own issues in life, but, uh, you know, my, my deepest moments of growth in Christ, uh, have oftentimes come from the accountability of a brother or sister in Christ who have loved me enough to pull me aside and say, we need we need to talk.
0: Yeah, for for example, the the second thing listed back in that first Corinthians passage was greed. I mean, not you know, that says anyone who claims to be a, a believer but is sexually immoral or greedy yeah. or idolater or slander and it goes on, you know, slander with our but we don't we don't even talk about greed in the American church. And right. and much less hold somebody accountable for it. Yeah. But I love I love where Paul heads with this. It's not just on the discipline side. It's like we don't want that person to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So find a way in the end when the person repents or when things seem to be being restored to forgive the person. And he uses the word again to comfort the person. And I, I think that's a good message for us today that as, as we think about what it means to, to love people in the world, that doesn't mean that we become doormats without opinions but it also doesn't mean that we are harsh and unforgiving. We are, we are called to be a people of peace and of love and forgiveness and restoration. The God of all comfort comforts us so that we can comfort others. Well, it's been a good discussion today. I, I don't know what we discovered uh, exactly, except that there these are some hard things that we're coming across and they're hard still today to do as a body of believers any anywhere and at any time. So it's something good really to, to think about next time. We're going to move a little deeper into second Corinthians and learn a little bit more about Paul, what Paul is writing and how he's encouraging the people in the city of Corinth folks. If you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, FishersUMC.org and click on the Be On Mission link. That'll take you to more elements of this year-long study. That includes daily Bible readings with devotions and poems that go with them, and other episodes of this podcast. And if you want to stay up to date with the Be On Mission podcast, we encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, may God bless.